Hey, just a heads up in this episode, we are going to be talking about substance abuse and addiction, and there are also mentions of suicide. Please take care of yourself and listen at your own discretion. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth, where we give you the stories behind the science of emergency dispatch. This is an official podcast of the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch, the world's leading authority in dispatch science. I'm your host, Becca Barris, writer and copy editor for the Journal of Emergency Dispatch. In each episode, we'll be bringing you stories of the fascinating people who work in this area. We'll give you their backstory, including how they got there, what they're working on, and what drew them to the field. These are people who represent the cutting edge in emergency dispatch, and I hope you'll join us to hear more about them. Welcome to Dispatch in Depth. Today we're talking with the hosts of the Halt and Call for Backup podcast series from Positive Connections Radio, Jim McClintock and Mike Cook, and Cassie Sexton, who's a series regular. Jim is a licensed marriage and family therapist and life coach who specializes in working with first responders. Mike is the client care manager for First Responder Wellness in Newport, California, helping first responders in recovery from mental health challenges, alcohol abuse, and other obstacles in the road to wellness. Cassie is from Southern California and has extensive law enforcement experience and spent most of her career as a 911 dispatcher. She's passionate about helping first responders due to her own healing journey of dealing with post-traumatic stress through wellness, meditation, and recovery. Welcome, Jim, Mike, and Cassie. Thank you, Becca. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Me too. Thank you. I'm excited to have you guys. It's not often that I have podcast baddies. Can I say baddies? I'm going to say baddies. Baddies on this podcast. So I'm, I'm really excited to talk with you all. So to get started, could each of you please give a quick rundown of your career path? How did you get where you are today? Cassie, we'll start with you. <laughs> I fell into law enforcement, as I say, very young, 19. I'll say most children figure out their lives and dreams and everyone's like, oh, I dreamt of being a cop. Like that was not me. I was dreaming of being a grocery store clerk for my whole life. I used to sit at six years old and I don't know if the guys even know this. <laughs> I used to like use my little remote control to scan in my VHSs and like anything with the barcode because my family, I grew up in a legacy grocery store business family, like both my grandparents, my mom, my aunts, everyone. So I lived, breathed, dreamed grocery store business. I did that, don't worry. And then I was going to also be a teacher and very quickly realized that that was not the final career goal for me. I had a friend who was in law enforcement and I found that very intriguing and ended up falling into the business. I love breathe dreamed law enforcement and every aspect of it from parking control to the jail where I spent my early career years and then ultimately landed in dispatch where I spent most of my career. What I didn't learn early on was coping skills and wellness. I was part of the old school generation, the suck it up, keep going, the show must go on. And I also lived, breathed, dreamed that. I thought I was perfectly molded for this career. That's how my family also lived. And it was about 10 years in after I had experienced a lot of loss and grief in this career, major incidents like a lot of us, that I started experiencing my own PTS symptoms and life tragedy and I didn't realize that what I was doing wasn't working until it suddenly wasn't working and I pretty much fell apart. I went on a 10-month leave of absence from work and during that time unfortunately had a suicide attempt. I'm very grateful that that wasn't completed and that I ended up reaching out for help and went to treatment, worked really hard 
and put the work in on myself, the effort, and I got better. And I still, that is still an everyday effort. I'm four years into recovery, five years into being sober, and it's still an everyday work, but it's worth it because I'm healthy. And I encourage everyone who is trying to get healthy to do it because it is 100% worth it. But I went back to work, proved to myself I could do dispatch still. And I joined my peer support team and wellness and all that. But what I realized is my passion wasn't in helping the citizens anymore. Instead, it became helping my first responder friends, family, if you will. And I changed my career. And so I actually worked with Mike for a while at First Responder Wellness. And my role was a little different. I started talking to agencies and peer support teams about what First Responder Wellness was and telling them that there was treatment options out there. And then recently I switched jobs again, but this time kind of stepping back into a different role where I work for a tech company called Mindbase, which provides an app and resources and proactive approach to helping agencies provide resources for their peer support team and agencies. So it's a little different, but still in the same wellness realm. Yeah. And it's so invaluable that you have that experience as a dispatcher, right? Because it's hard to find therapists or you know people in the wellness sector who have experience with first responders and it's very rare to have those people also have experience as first responders and even more rare to have those people have dispatch backgrounds so Cassie I'm so glad to have you on the podcast today Mike let's hear from you next you bet Cassie I didn't know that about grocery store before I was a police officer I worked as a clerk at a grocery store Thanks, Becca, for having us on the show. I, I'm really honored to be on your show. And so my story goes, I was a police officer for 19 years, college degree, worked the streets for about seven years. I was an evidence technician, drug recognition expert. I was on the search warrant team. I became a property detective. And then I spent a majority of my detective career in vice narcotics, ending my career at year 19. So during this time, especially during to the end, I, I failed at asking for help and I ended up losing it all. I lost my career, my family, my friends, my reputation, and pretty much my life as I knew it. Then I got help and I began a new life plan, basically. My personal recovery started out coming first and for the past 11 years is at the forefront of my life. I do put my recovery first. I'm okay, and therefore I'm available to help others who are not. So I went back to college. I became a drug and alcohol counselor, and I've been working in the field of recovery for the past 10 years. Right around 2017, I was interviewed on a podcast and decided to start my own podcast called Positive Connections Radio. I, I began working specifically with first responders and reaching out to the first responder realm around the country. And it was started to help shed the light on first responders getting help for mental health issues along with substance abuse. And the main focus is to help break the stigma of first responders getting help. My goal was to reach around the country and search and vet people and organizations that say that they help first responders. And it's also a platform for those who have the courage to share their story Others listen and are more willing to get help. So I found that to be true. And I'm very, very blessed to do what I'm doing for sure. And, and my motto is uh, you don't have to lose it all to get help. 
I lost it all and decided when I first started on this path that my goal would center around four things. Number one, I would get and maintain my own personal recovery and figure out what that looked like in my new life because the life before was I knew was going to be gone and I had to restart and I had to start in sobriety, number one, and my own personal recovery. And along that first year also, I knew I would endure the, the consequences of my decisions and my addictions and move forward in a positive. So that's one reason I called it Positive Connections Radio, because I wanted to connect with other positive people around the country. The second thing I wanted to do and I decided to do to dedicate my life to continue to improve on myself and remain in active recovery no matter what. No matter if the sky is falling, no matter what happens in my life, I have the choice to stay in my recovery. Nothing can make me go back to where I was before. And, and for me, alcohol and drugs is part of my story. And for me to use or to drink is to die. So that's how I look at my life. Three, I would be there for others who are suffering and afraid to ask for help. I mean, even as your life becomes circling around and out of control, going down the drain, you know it's coming to an end. You don't know what to do. I wanted to be there to show them that there's hope and you're not alone and there's a way out. I found a way out. And hopefully that people will hear my story and help pass it on when they're ready, when they're able to develop their own recovery program, if they have the passion to do so. I mean, some people get in recovery and think, I'm out of here, I'm just gonna live my life, which is totally fine. Uh, in my case, no. And then the, lastly, the thing that I wanted to do eventually, and this was my plan early, early on, and especially when I started Positive Connections Radio, was that I wanted to spread around the country and get the word out. And I knew that if I had a podcast out there that I had guests on there that were talking about recovery, I could share my story. I'm an open book, 100%. I'm not as sick as my secrets anymore. All my secrets are out on the table. I haven't had to revert back to what I was doing before. And eventually I knew, I knew, and this is where Jim comes in. I knew that I would join forces with others and help bring about positive change and awareness and finally help break the stigma of mental health issues among first responders. Yes, 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 yes. Mike, that is one of the things I really value about talking with you and what I value about your podcast series is that you have this generous worldview where you say, I'm okay now and I am now going to help other people be okay. I think that's beautiful. And I think your candidness in talking about recovery and talking about the things that you've gone through I have helped, you know, countless people and will continue to help people just because you're willing to be vulnerable and say, this is what happened to me and I don't want this to happen to anyone else ever again. So thank you. Thank you for being open. And it's a blessing too. I meet people and even recently as yesterday, but I meet people that were, that were in my situation or are going through a situation very similar. And I'm like, I got you. I know, I know similar what you're going through right now. And without going into detail, you're safe. You've got you've got support no matter where you're at. Everybody has a 100% chance of getting recovery. All they have to be is honest, open, and willing to do so. Thank you. Cassie. 
I wanted to add on to what Mike said. So I met Mike earlier in my recovery too, before I even started working for first responder wellness and Mike left off that he runs support groups as well, or AA fellowship first responder specific support groups. And then I also do a component of that as well, but that's something that I appreciate about Mike and I learned this about recovery and he can attest to this too, but in order for us to stay in recovery, part of the testament of that is to keep it, you have to give it away. And so I think that for me personally, at a certain point in my recovery, in order for me to stay sober, in order for me to stay healthy, and in order for me to stay the way I am, part of that is paying it forward to others. And so just like Mike, when I hear someone who's coming in at a different phase of recovery than I am, and they're like, I'm struggling with X, Y, Z, I'm like, hey, I've been there, me too. This is what worked for me. It may not work for you, but this is how I got through it. And hopefully my story resonates with you or let me introduce you to Mike or let me introduce you. There's so many times where Mike and I have connected or shared other people that were willing to connect with other people at a different phase of recovery so that they can help. That's what's so amazing about our recovery community is that we're willing to help each other get better because we want to pay it forward. Yeah, thanks so much, Cassie, too. That is so correct. I did. I left that part out because... You know, part of my recovery, I'm lucky I get to work with first responders every day. I am blessed every time I go to work. I'm excited every time I wake up. However, you know, it takes work to do this. And and, and starting recovery, I mean, I got sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous with just general population people. They, they weren't first responders or anything, and they didn't have to hear my story. I didn't really share. I just wanted to know what they were doing to, to keep maintaining their life and being happy. You know, and then, of course, there's first responder only meetings. I started one in 2017 also in San Diego, and now it's Zoom, and it's been going on every Sunday night at 7 p.m. at 1,900 hours every Sunday night since 2017, coming up in the six years. So, and now there's meetings everywhere. You know, Cassie started the first responder fellowship. It's not AA-based, but it's just a fellowship of first responders, former or current hired, fired, whatever they are, the only requirement is to be a first responder or a former first responder. So it's a blessing that we have that for sure. Yes. And that community is so important in recovery. And just even if people aren't in recovery, it's helpful in supporting their general well-being. Jim, let's hear from you. Hey there, everybody. Thanks. Becca, thank you for the privilege of being on your podcast. It's so cool being on this side because I don't know about Mike, but I've not been interviewed in a long time. And it's just a ton of fun to be on this side of the microphone. I'm Jim McClintock, licensed marriage and family therapist. My, my journey began as an ocean lifeguard in the Southern Orange County beaches for about 40 years, a beach lifeguard supervisor, EMT. I'm a wannabe paramedic and I uh, was going down that road when a job opportunity came along at the police department up in Anaheim. And one of the cool things about that career was that I was on a 312 plan. So I worked three days a week as a police officer and my four days off as a lifeguard. So I didn't lose touch with the roots of where I came from as far as my beach friends, my surfing friends, my beach volleyball friends. That was very, very important to me. And it's always been very important to me. It's always been like outdoor aquatics, fitness stuff is always kind of in my anchor uh, where I can go and, and decompress. And I could feel that stress hitting me the moment I, I became a police officer, you know, and I was one of those guys that thought he had it all figured out. 
I got this balance. I've, I'm focusing hard on my fitness, right? But one of the things that kept tapping at me, well, there's probably a couple, but one was I had alcoholism that ran in my family of origin, big time on my dad's side of the family. And God bless them, all those people that came from World War II, that greatest generation, that depression era generation. They didn't have a whole lot of resources other than you know a bottle of whiskey. And so I started becoming this partying beach lifeguard and it was really getting to an extreme point And my dad had one conversation with me when I was about 24 years old. And he just said, you know, son, you remind me of my brothers. You know, my dad decided not to drink because of what he saw, you know, in his family when he came back from the wars and all. And that's all my dad had to say to me. And I took a step back and and said, you know what, what am I doing? What am I doing? Working out like a maniac only to be hung over, right? So I started changing that, that trajectory. And interestingly, Becoming a therapist, being in the psychology field was never on my radar until 9-11 hit when a lot of my colleagues, police and fire, were still in the reserves in the military. And they were getting called back up to duty to go fight in what is a desert storm. I can't remember anymore what was happening back then. A number of them did not come back. The ones that came back were not the same. I always say they were like these mere shelves of their former selves. And their biggest complaint was that they couldn't find someone to talk to that understood the military life, the law enforcement, the emergency responder life, the dispatcher life. And I was born at Camp Pendleton, you know, the son of a, of a U.S. Marine. So I realized, you know what? That's what I'm going to do. And I just changed course. Went back to school, got my master's in clinical psych, and I was laser focused on working with emergency responders. I work with others, but that was my focus. And The rest is kind of history. I met Mike through another friend of ours who's in the psychology field. Mike and I hit it off. We are like, we're like a band of brothers, he and I, and we laugh, we joke, we connect, we're there for each other. We decided to call the show Halt and Call for Backup, and Mike invited me. Mike saw something in me that he felt would be valuable for his show, so he brought me on his show, and then just through a series of events, We kept talking about HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, which is nothing we invented. That has been around in the recovery field for a long time. And it's this visual of a stop sign, right? HALT. And then we added the emergency responder component call for backup, because that's what all of us are trained to do. Whether you're a communications professional like Cassie, whether you're a sworn or non-sworn individual, firefighter, paramedic, uh, you are trained to call for backup. So if we could make that connection, are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? And there's some other ones, but those are the main ones. And if you're one, two, three, or four of those, and you're not paying attention to a self-awareness, you are setting yourself up for a bad day. I will tell you, and I think Cassie and Mike would agree, the folks that have gotten in trouble, most of them wish they had a do-over unless they're absolute sociopaths. And the ones that wish they had a do-over can go back and say, you know what? I wished I would have handled it differently. If, if only I had gotten some sleep. If only I called in sick to work and didn't go in because I was angry at my kids, my spouse, my bills. I was tired. I was lonely. And so we focus on that and halt and call for backup. And, and that's where we've come in. And then I, I've met Cassie before up at First Responder Wellness and Cassie's story. It's funny. I'm brought to tears every time I hear stories on our podcast or just in life. 
And I'm sitting back listening to Cassie talk. And I got tears in my eyes and I hear and feel her heart to help others, which is why I became a lifeguard to help others and then became a police officer. And Mike, the same way, his story just draws me in and brings tears to my eyes. And one of the most amazing things about what we're doing is hope. We want to infuse hope into the people that are struggling, that maybe have lost their careers and trying to figure out where to go next, that are in their careers and trying to figure out how to step back and reload and relaunch, how to change their lifestyles around. And that's what what I'm here for too. And it's just an absolute blessing and a privilege. And the way Halt and Call for Backup is getting out there is just blowing me away. You know, there was two amazing podcasts and I'll slow down after this guys, I don't want to over talk. Cassie Sexton, who's our guest today, her podcast exploded and it resonated with so many telecommunication professionals out there in the emergency responder profession. And even those who aren't even in this profession were touched by Cassie's vulnerability, her story, her turnaround and her success. I can't even hold on to her wings. She, she just got back from Missouri. She's going to all, she's invited to all these different events to help other people. It's just blows me away and is an absolute blessing. And the other one was uh, Mary Covarrubias, the retired Long Beach police officer who, who her story is just a rock star story too. Those two podcasts in particular exploded from the gates of Halt and Call for Backup. And Mike and I sit back and we just shake our head and smile. We can't believe that Becca contacted us. I know we sent, <laughs> I think it was Cassie's podcast out there to a lot of the 911 professionals that are out there. And Becca got a hold of us and, and here we are. Yes, I am always on the lookout for other podcasts about first response and especially for dispatchers, right? Because I don't I don't see them as competing, right? Like we talk about wellness a lot on this podcast and you talk about wellness on your podcast, but we're we're not in competition, right? It's like it's like two people rock up to a party and there's two cakes and one is maybe smaller and one is maybe bigger, but guess what the guests are saying? The guests aren't saying, "Oh, look at that tiny cake." They're saying, "Holy crap, two cakes. This rocks." So yeah, I'm just I'm I'm really excited to talk to you guys and Again, so grateful for your candidness and so grateful for just what you're bringing to the table, just breaking down these stigmas of talking about mental health, of talking about your own experiences, because I feel like sometimes in first response, we get into this habit of talking about it abstractly, right? Like, oh, you know, some police officers have alcoholism or, you know, some firefighters have opioid addictions, but like... No, like you guys have lived through it and you are using that to bring hope to other people and saying it's not going to be easy, but guess what? It's worth it. And like maybe I hurt people in my life, but now I have the choice every single day to help other people. And what is more empowering than that? Yeah, it's really a blessing. That's for sure to be able to help out. And one of the things that really caught Mike's and I attention is a lot of the focus has been on everybody but the telecom professionals, the 911 dispatchers. But Mike and I knew from our years on the service and our time up in our own comm centers, I was assigned there left and right. We had shortages, we had overtimes, and my learning curve up there was just amazing. And one of the things that caught my attention was, you know, we think, I'm not slamming anybody. We think, we generally think police, fire, military, paramedics and all are on the tip of the arrow because they're the ones responding. But it's actually the dispatchers that are the first responders. And they're the ones, one of the things they're really having a problem with is this lack of closure. 
number one, they send people into harm's way. They know they're sending people into harm's way. They hear their teammates going into harm's way. They hear them arriving on scene, hold their breath that things are going to get code for and, and, you know, mellow pretty quick, but then sometimes it goes sideways. Sometimes they hear the shots fired. Sometimes they hear their teammates screaming for help. Sometimes it's just an absolute rodeo that occurs and they don't hear what really happens at the end. They don't know really are our people safe? Is the person that called us safe? What's going on on there? And then as soon as that call is settled down, boom, on to the next one. And if you work in any kind of middle to large city, it's that way for your shift. Boom and go to the next, boom and go to the next. And what do you do with the unknown, the lack of closure and the reliving of the trauma when you're hearing on your phone, on your headset, people screaming for help, fires burning, people can't get out, you know, and you're left to go home with that. Right. And not only are they hearing the fires, not only are they hearing the screams, there's only so much they can do, right? You, you know, you have the police officers, you have the firefighters, the EMTs coming onto the scene, and they can do something, right? Even if there's not a lot they can do, they can do something. Whereas dispatch, you are, you're stuck, you can give instructions over the phone, but there's only so much that you can do. And then, like you said, you have no closure. Whereas, you know, the first responders who are on scene will see how it plays out. And Cassie, you have a lot of experience with this. Please talk to us. Yeah. So I, there's two thoughts. One, I was laughing as Jim had said the first first responders, because that was the title Mike and I chose for my first interview that Mike ever did for me. The first first responder. So true. And also this is a big conversation lately. Jim's right. My job in general involves a lot of travel, but I've been doing a lot of sessions and training and I train here at the local academy for dispatch and supervisor, CTO, all of it. I love it. I'm passionate about it. Tell me all the things. Let me help you. Every class I ask, who in here is understaffed? Almost every single person raises their hand. There might be, and I'm saying one agency in a class of 30 people who's like, not me but everyone else there. And I'm like, good for you. Everyone else in this room, I'm talking to you, but also I'm still talking to you who didn't raise your hand because it still applies. Everyone is experiencing shortages. And also that's not the only problem. Dispatch isn't getting easier. It's getting harder. Video 911 is already launched in a lot of comm centers across the country, but it's mandated in some places and now it's going to continue launching. I'm doing a panel interview later this week with Carbine, which is a one of the 911 main components. And we're talking about trauma with video 911 and what's to come and what do we think about that? And I'm just thinking we talk about closure and how we don't get it. And then I'm thinking in my head, hi, we jump from call to call to call already. And then we're going to introduce video 911, which in some way does give us a picture. And we already make up pictures in our mind, right? A video, a movie of what we think we're seeing. But now we're going to insert videos so that we can see what's happening. But then we're going to cut it off right away and move on to the next call. And so I'm just thinking like, oh, this job is getting harder, not easier. And how are we going to do trauma training for these dispatchers? Has anyone thought about that? Are we doing it? Are these companies doing that? Who's gonna be doing it? Are you gonna just come in like a CAD or a phone system or a computer system and say, hi, we're your new system. Here's your technical training. Good luck to you, have a great day. Who's doing the training? 
I'm really curious, whoever's listening to this podcast, if you guys are in your master's class right now, going through a study that you need to do, this would be a good one. <laughs> Trauma in 911 in the future, because I'm really curious to see how it's going to affect PTSD, if it's going to improve or get worse. Yes, absolutely. While you were chatting, I was looking up on edrjournal.org. Last year, we had a research poster that was submitted to the International Academies of Emergency Dispatch on this topic. It was a group of CCM graduates, um, the Fitch and Associates Communication Center Manager Program, where they did that exact same thing. They're like, hey, we're seeing where the trends are going. We're seeing that video is being introduced to more and more centers. We need to stop and think about this because there are some there are a lot of positives to having video technology right so i just talked with the welsh ambulance trust and they have the option for low acuity calls and high acuity calls too to use video so just so they can assess the situation and say okay your finger really is hanging off or no that leg isn't as bad as it looks and so in those cases it is really helpful for them to kind of get that closure to say okay they really are safe i really am making a good call but cassie you're right, too. Emergency dispatchers hear these awful things and they imagine them. And sometimes seeing it makes it less worse, right? You're like, oh, OK, it's not the scariest thing on the planet. It's something that we can fix. It's something we can manage. And then sometimes it will be just horrific and awful. And you're right. We need to be aware of that because this is already such a difficult job and there's already such a lack of support. And I want everyone to know, too, I see the value in it finding locations better, knowing that your officer's okay when the radio's dead and you're not sure if they're okay. This helps, I know, and it also brings more trauma. So there's the duality of everything in life. So I can see both. I just want to make sure that we're prepared. <laughs> right. And isn't that one of the tools of recovery is like not going into situations blind and being like, oh, there's probably not going to be alcohol at this party because guess what? There's going to be alcohol at this party. And you need to have a plan in advance of what you're going to say to people if you're going to show up at all. Yeah, real quickly to dovetail what Cassie's talking about. And Mike and I, it's really interesting through halt and call for backup. We got connected with a number of these 911 professionals, the, especially the uh, Mike, I can't remember his title, Mr. Wasserman up in the state of Washington or their 911 center. He's like the, the chairman. He is highly interested after listening to Cassie's podcast with us in getting ahead of this curve. And he's trying really hard to, and he even brought up the 911 live and, and the next gen that's coming at uh, our, our communication specialists. And so I know for a fact, Mike knows for a fact, I'm sure Cassie does too. There's some really amazing leaders out there that are realizing this is a deal. It's been a deal for a long time. It's just been flying under the radar. And now that it's out there, everyone knows this train's coming down the track. Right? What's the best predictor of future behavior? Past behavior. What happened to our military? What happened to our firefighters? What happened to our paramedics, our police, our deputies, right? It's happening to our dispatchers. It's been happening all this time. And so let's get ahead of this curve. We can do it. It's going to take some effort. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some heavy lifting on everyone's part including our comm center professionals, right? But it's good work. It's really good work to do. So I'm always looking for a positive piece too. we got some great folks trying to find their way through this. Definitely. And dispatchers also, the, the, we forget about them. We forget about them for a long time. And me personally, even when I was a police officer, I'd go into the comm center. I couldn't do what they were doing. I didn't have the desire to and the stress level itself, just watching them do what they do. And they were able to 
swivel in their chairs, go grab the book and talk someone through a choking, talk someone through heart attack or CPR, fire, talking to a little kid, all these calls at once, sending it out, making sure their officers are safe. They're <laughs> gonna get their safe, they're gonna get all the information and then sitting back and the line's dead and they're like, wow, okay, yes, ma'am. Oh, you have a barking, barking dog next door. Okay, I just like hung up on someone that was trying to kill somebody and now I have to deal with that. So we do forget a lot and I'm so glad the word is getting out there and also through the podcast, Halt and Call for Backup too. We've had a lot of connections with the dispatch community and and thank God for Cassie too and her, and her ability to you know, open up and have that passion to help other people because she's helped herself and she knows what it's like and she's a good sounding board for other people to hear. Did you work in my city? Those are the same calls I had. <laughs> of course. <laughs> you might have been my No, but I was going to say, when you say that's what we do and that's, you can't do it, that's the point because I can't do what you do. And I always used to say this because I, I also loved when officers came in, right? And they this is what it would look like. They'd come and I called it the circle, like our little calm circle. They'd sit on the barrier outside of the circle in our in our extra chairs and they'd just watch us. And they'd be like, wow, so impressive. I could never do this job. With the few exceptions of the officers that got injured and came and worked overtime in dispatch, and then they would stay and linger and work overtime for months and months and years to come. And I always loved those officers because they were the ones that could tell people, no, we're not coming out to your call. But the ones who came in and were always very impressed by us, I love them because it gives us praise, but also they go out and tell their friends how amazing we are, right? And then they have more respect for us. But I can't do your job. And the point is, is that we're all part of the pieces of the puzzle and we all work together. Animal control, parking control, officers, detectives, command staff, dispatch, I mean, the point is that without all of our pieces, the clock wouldn't work properly. And so I used to try to remind officers that like, yeah, you can't sit here in my chair and type 80,000 words per minute and answer the calls as fast as I can and angry type or like do any of it. But the point is, I also am not going to roll code to a call and remember how to get there without thinking and get out and be completely calm, hold a gun and do all those verbal judo things that's your specialty. This is mine. And that's how it should be. This is my space and that's yours. <laughs> and you we know, make Cassie, the best team. I and I love it, Cassie. I love everything. And I love what you did. And the saying that you couldn't do what we did and I couldn't do what you did. But I remember the calls where I needed help and calling dispatch and mine was station C and they responded. And I knew when you picked it up and you heard me, and you heard my calls for help, I needed cover, I needed whatever it was, I knew that it was okay. I knew it was like, it was like having a helicopter flying over and go, we got you, we, we, got, we got you covered. Yeah. I felt safe, right. I felt safe. And that was, a, a, it's great, I love it. There's a, a point on that that's really, I wanna make really clear. It's there was a number of moments in my police officer career that I was suddenly in over my head whether I was being drawn down by a, a gun, being fired upon, uh, you name it, it was happening around me uh, and others. I'll just use me as the example. I remember all I had to say was my unit was uh, Bravo 31, Bravo 31, 1033, which means emergency. That's all I could get out or just say Bravo 31 and that's all I could say. And that's all I needed to say because the dispatchers are so damn good at recognizing our voices. They say that was Officer McClintock. 
and they come back, Bravo 31, Bravo 31, and then Officer McClintock, Officer McClintock, and then the units are rolling and you hear them rolling. And all I had to do was stay focused on what was happening in front of me, try to keep it as code four as possible and wait for backup to get there. And our helicopter would be there. And the dispatcher would say his last known location was here. And you know, the world is coming. And so when dispatchers get on and they get going and they get that fire in them and they start recognizing the voices and the locations, it's just like having an extra guardian angel around you. It really, really is. And that's a great metaphor for recovery, this idea that the first response profession, you need all of these different people, you need all of them in different roles, and maybe you can't do one part, but maybe you're good at something else, right? Like maybe you aren't great at chatting, maybe you can't do a podcast like you guys can, right? But you can share episodes that you hear, you can start discussions in your own center. The path to recovery isn't just one path. It's a bunch of branches and you do need that backup. And like you guys said, halt and call for backup. And that's one thing I really admire about the first response community is that it is so tight knit. And even though it is hard to talk about these things, I have never, ever talked with someone about this topic who said, no, that's not happening. Or like, no, that doesn't happen in my center. They are all very open to hearing what's going on and then also working at trying to find solutions because we have, we have solutions and honestly, the more the merrier. Let's talk about that for a second. Cause I don't know about everyone else on this call, but when I was initially going through recovery and when I went on leave, I thought I was the only human being that had ever suffered through recovery at that time. I had gone on leave. I had only ever in my career seen two other dispatchers go on stress leave ever, and they never came back to work. Very stigma. They were talked about behind their back for years to come, saying that they were taking advantage of the system. It was very stigma oriented at that time. And so when I went on leave, I'm like, it's possible I'm never coming back. What are they saying about me? And what's this look like? And I'll tell you what, I came back And at first it was really hard because I was told not to talk about my stuff because people were uncomfortable around me. And initially I thought that and felt that. And I sat in the back of the room and I wondered, but I'll tell you what, that was so not the case because as it it started with my officer friends, it was not dispatch. My officer friends were coming in to see me and the few that knew hugged me, welcomed me back and were just really glad to see me. And then it started from there. Other people came in and sought me out and they were like, hey, I heard what happened. I don't know the full story, but you're not alone. And I was like, what? Okay. And then things started kind of going from there. And it was the more that I was open about my story or just even kind of inching out that things were happening, I started getting a lot of me too's. I have someone in my family who experienced that. I know another officer, my brother, sister, cousin, whoever. I suddenly realized like I'm not the only person on this island. And then my partner started asking me. And then it wasn't until like my first ever podcast interview, I posted it publicly. And I was like, well, there's no going back from here. The whole world is going to see it. Here we go. And it posted and everyone who heard it and listened to it and i started getting a lot of feedback and everyone it, my worry was they were going to say 
you're broken, you can't work here anymore, and you can't do your job. We don't trust you to protect our officers. I was so scared of all the things, negative, 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 negative. And it was the opposite. You're so brave. I can't believe you went through that alone. How scary. You're not alone. I wish you would have called. And then there were a few people that fell off the radar and iced me out, and that's okay. But there were so many more people that told me I was not on an island. And I was like, well, I wish I would have let people in, first of all. And second of all, I didn't realize how many other people struggled with mental health, addiction, whatever, insert word here. I'm not alone. And our first responder community of recovery is freaking huge. Isn't it weird how we're so concerned over what everybody else thinks of us and says about us? You know, early on in recovery, my counselor told me, Mike, it's none of your business what other people think about you. And that's the very first time I ever heard that. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I didn't say it, but I was thinking horrible things to her for about three or four seconds. <laughs> and then I looked out the window, and this is my first week in recovery, okay? This is the very, very first week. It was a Friday afternoon. She was about ready to go home. And I first thought about that. I'm thinking, if it's none of my business what other people think about me, what is my business? And I said to myself within seconds about what you think about yourself. And at that time, I said, Mike, you don't think a lot about yourself right now at all. What are you going to do about it? Mm. And I wasn't okay. And I was told, and I know, and I hold true to this day, there is hope. And like Cassie says, you are not alone. Once I'm able to feel good about myself and work on myself, then I don't care. I mean, I'm not lying. I'm not cheating. I'm not stealing. I'm not doing anything. And if someone's talking about me, I know who I am now. So they can say whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And it's a blessing. It's a blessing for recovery. It's a blessing to have people like Becca and, <laughs> and Cassie and Jim in my life because you, you fulfill my life. It makes it that much better, you know, living and to have this uh, community. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. That's and my biggest is. piece of advice for people too, is it's none of your business what other people think of you. It is. That's right. On Mike's note there, it's really interesting how we think we're all alone and the truth is we're not. And we get in trouble at work or we get in trouble at life. And for some reason, we think we're the only people that have done this wrong or are going through this moment in time. And the truth is we're not. And when we finally grab onto that and realize we are not alone, that there are people out there that have walked this journey. Maybe they haven't walked the exact same path we're on, but they've walked a path that resembles the path that we're on. And if we can continue to learn to open up, reach out, talk to people that we trust, try to talk to someone who we don't know or don't trust and see if we can trust them and to begin the conversation, because that's the moment when everything changes for the better. You know, you'll always hear me quote the Jungle Book, uh, Rudyard Kipling, for the strength of the wolf is the pack. And the strength of the pack is the wolf. And it is very, very true, whether you are in recovery or just doing life. And on the recovery note, amazing Tim McGraw song from a number of years ago called I've Got Friends That Do. When I first got into working with recovery on these different clinical teams, it was all because I was trying to get through my master's program. I did not want to do any work with the uh, recovery community because why I came from this life of 
as I'm a, if I'm a lifeguard on the beach and you're drunk or you're high, you're just a pain. You're just a pain trying to kill himself on the water un, in a, unintentionally, you know, or trying to fall, ram into the pier. Or as a police officer, we're responding to the mess that you've created, mm. you know, which can be easy or very, very difficult. But then the more I, I had this really amazing supervisor, Jim, do the opposite of how you feel. Try to work with them and see what's going on. And I learned a couple of things. One is like the fingers are pointing back at me. This is, this is my issue, not wanting to work with this group. And I can figure out why. But the second thing is it turned into magic for me. I have never met people who are working the program and working hard. I have never met a more honest, vulnerable, real, call it the way it is, group of folks that have a really good bullshit meter and they can say it to you directly but also with love and grace and mercy and now the pendulum in my personal life has swung so far to the opposite side i've got friends that do i have more colleagues more friends more peers that are in recovery than I do that are normies, the old fashioned term for folks that are like me. And I love it. I have never met, I'm not slamming my normie friends. I'm just saying, I know exactly what I'm gonna get from my friends that do or have done. And that is truth with love and mercy. I mean, I'm not gonna slam my normie friends either, but as someone with mental illness, like I don't understand people who don't have mental illness. I'm like, it's 2023, pick something. That's how it works, right? Just kidding. <laughs> Sorry, Jim just like spit out his coffee everywhere. But like, no, I I love that. And I love the ability of, you know, the people in your life who know you, the more that they know you, the more honest they can be with you and the better person you're going to be able to become. It's so valuable to have people around you who know what you're going through. And if they don't know intimately, at least to have curiosity about it, at least to have compassion about it. And it is truly wild how much positivity and connection comes back to you when you're vulnerable with the world. That is something that I personally have struggled with for a really long time. And I would, would go to therapy and my therapist would be like, Becca, you, you have to tell people the things you want. And I'm like, no, I don't, though. Like, they're they're just going to know or I'm just going to deal with it. But as soon as I, I started asking people for support, as soon as I started asking for help, as soon as I started asking, I'm going to cry on this podcast, you guys, come on. As soon as I started asking people to love me the way I was, they did. And it's like, what a miracle. Like, I don't care if you don't believe in spirituality. I don't care whatever you believe. There is... There's a miracle in that. There's a miracle in the depth of human emotion and grace. And like, how blessed are we to be able to live in a world where we can love each other like that? Beautiful. Love it. And we made Becca cry. Oh, yes. come on, guys. <laughs> if I'm tearing up, Becca's tearing up. <laughs> we have a habit of that, don't we? Yeah. We do. But we like, do. I, I love that because the first responder community especially has this 
long history of stiff upper lip. They push it down. Don't deal with it. Jim, like you were talking earlier, you know, men came home from World War II and they didn't know how to deal with all of these things. And that has really ingrained itself in society. It's ingrained itself in DNA even. So to to be talking to some people who have been in emergency response for, you know, a while, a really long time, and to, to hear you guys cry and be vulnerable is... Great. That's progress. That's growth. That's what we need. It is. And I think one of the things that stops people from checking out help, calling somebody else up, leaning in, number one is they don't see the light of hope. And what we do, what all of us do is we see the light of hope for you. Just lean on us. We we see the light of hope for you and just Take our hand and walk with us. We'll, we'll point you in the right direction. You know, I know it's hard to trust, but trust those who can see the light of hope for you in a healthy way. You know, and the other piece is that I've learned this so many years ago, you know, try to live your life where appropriate with nothing to fear, nothing to lose, nothing to prove. You know, when you can lift that kind of guilt and shame and fear and doubt off of you, the world is so much easier. You can breathe so much easier. And in, in working in recovery, working a program, working with a therapist, it requires you to do the opposite of how you feel a great amount of the time. And it's good. But what we want to do is, and no, who wants to do this? We need to feel the pain. We need to feel every ounce of the pain. We need to stay in the pain and feel every ounce of it until we can get good with it, and then move forward, fall forward, never stay there, never go back, right? Who in the heck wants to feel the pain? I've had enough pain, but it's important. It is. It's uh, it's so important. It's important to view that with balance, right? It is important to feel the pain, but like you said, don't dwell in it. Don't marinate in it. You need to feel the pain and then you can move forward. And then I loved what you said about if someone is on a point where they can't see hope for themselves, let someone else feel it for you. And it's courageous too, to actually, the only thing you have to do, the only thing you have to do is reach out your hand and you've got five hands pulling you over. You know, it's the courage to walk over that, that line of fear that a lot of us hold on to out of fear. And, and like Jim said, you know, you, when you come over to the, the winning side, we'll, we'll take care of you. We'll show you what worked for us and take what you want. Definitely. You don't have to do this alone. If you're going to lose your career or have lost your career or want to change your career and you don't know what to do, all of a sudden it hits you. I mean, there's so many examples in front of us. Look at Becca, look at Cassie, look at Mike, look at me, look at all of us that have decided for whatever the reason is, take a step back and reload and relaunch. And I'm telling you what, there's so much, there's so much white light in front of me for future and in front of these beautiful people I have the blessing to be with on this podcast. You know, it's just, it's great stuff when you can get here. And if you don't know how to get here, like do what Mike said, just reach your hand out. Beautiful, beautiful sentiment. Guys, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. We're going to wrap it up here. So before we go, if Listeners don't remember anything else from this podcast. What is one thing you would like them to take away? Cassie, we'll start with you. I think I'm going to echo what the boys said, that all it takes is raising your hand for help. I know that sometimes it feels like you're alone or that you're the only person that's ever experienced that. Me too. But all it takes is raising your hand. And there 
are so many first responder specific resources out there. Don't let anyone tell you different and we can help you find those. Mike, how about you? Thank you so much. I appreciate you inviting us on the show. It's been great. And a takeaway for this would be a little bit what Cassie said before uh, about when you finally get your own recovery, the term of you can't give what you don't possess and you can't keep what you don't give away. There is hope and you're not alone. And one of the biggest things, and I didn't make this up, but this is holds true is it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay that way. Thank you so much, Shekka, for having us on today. Again, what a what a privilege. And for those listening out there, never be dismayed at the day of small beginnings. If you've had a setback, if you've had a relapse, if you're at your wit's end, just turn the corner, fall forward, reach out, start over. We all start over. All of us do. I'm not done starting over. And never be dismayed if this is a day of small beginnings. Again, thank you all so much for coming on today. It's been a real privilege. We have links in the show notes for you. We have links to the Halton Catch Fire. No, not Halton Catch Fire. That's something else. <laughs> Halton Call for Backup podcast series and to Positive Con- Connections Radio in general. We'll have a link to that research paper on video calls and how they will affect trauma and dispatchers. If you are listening and you're like, hey, I want to talk about this on the podcast or you should get this person to be a guest, go ahead and email us at dispatchindepth at emergencydispatch.org. I'm very responsive to emails, huh, guys? I answer those babies pretty quickly and thoroughly, too, which is important. That's it for today. Thank you guys so much. And we will definitely talk to you again. Awesome. Thank you, Becky. Thanks. See you guys, too. Thanks for listening to Dispatch in Depth. Remember, it really helps if you rate and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dispatch in Depth is hosted by me, Becca Barris. I'm also the technical director and producer, and Matthew Maiko is the executive producer. If you are having suicidal thoughts, please, please reach out for help. You can call the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline available 24 hours a day. That is 988 in the United States. You can also call 1-800-273-8255. Please reach out and talk to someone if you need help.